Let me start with a few housekeeping items. Um, for those of you um, who weren't here for Christian Belief One, I uh, just want to say welcome. And as I've said before, this is a standalone course, so you don't need to have taken the first one. Um, also, if you haven't registered, that'd be helpful if you would go ahead and register for the course. Uh, that way, when I send out mass emails, I'm not missing anyone. Um, so if you haven't registered yet, just go do that. That'll help me out. Um, and then I sent the syllabus, so I think most of you know, but the book that the lectures are based off of are Greg Allison's 50 Core Truths. And so Christian Belief 2 is going to cover the second half. We did the first half in the first course. Um, also, every week I will try to send out an email. Um, I sent out an email this morning with my lecture notes for this lecture and the PowerPoint slides. So you can have that digitally if you want to follow along or look over again. Those are yours to keep. Um, so I'll, I'll do that each week as we go on. So are there any questions about the course or the reading or anything like that right now? Good. Great. Well, um, let me start by praying for us. And this is a, a little devotional book. It's called The Valley of Vision. It's a collection of Puritan prayers and devotions. And there's a prayer on the Holy Spirit. So it was fitting. So I'll read this prayer and then we'll jump in. O Holy Spirit, as the sun is full of light, the ocean full of water, heaven full of glory, so may my heart be full of thee. Vain are all divine purposes of love and the redemption wrought by Jesus, except thou work within, regenerating by thy power, giving me eyes to see Jesus, showing me the realities of the unseen world. Give me thyself without measure, as an unimpaired fountain, as inexhaustible riches. I bewail my coldness, poverty, emptiness, imperfect vision, languid service, prayerless prayers, praiseless praises. Suffer me not to grieve or resist thee. Come as power to expel every rebel lust to reign supreme and keep me thine. Come as teacher, leading me into all the truth, filling me with all understanding. Come as love, that I may adore the Father and love him as my all. Come as joy, to dwell in me, move in me, animate me. Come as light, illuminating the scripture, molding me in its laws. Come as sanctifier, body, soul, and spirit, wholly thine. Come as helper, with strength to bless and keep, directing my every step. Come as beautifier, bringing order out of confusion, loveliness out of chaos. Magnify to me thy glory by being magnified in me, 
and make me redolent of thy fragrance. Amen. So this week we're going to discuss the doctrine of God the Holy Spirit. And here's the big idea of the lecture today. The big idea is that the Holy Spirit is God's great gift in the life of the Christian. The Holy Spirit is God's great gift in the life of a Christian. So some questions of application for us as we think about this um, are, how important of a role do I typically assign the Holy Spirit in my growth and godliness as I seek to grow in Christ-likeness? Another question would be, have you ever experienced ignorance, confusion, perhaps maybe even fear concerning the Holy Spirit? Any brave souls shared or care to share or answer any of those questions? I'll share a story, and maybe someone else can too, but... Um, Yeah, I hate to admit this. Uh, There was a time um, early on in college when I really uh, was fearful of the Holy Spirit. And part of that was um, my senior year of high school, I went to this charismatic conference, and there were 6,000 people in this conference. And um, yeah, there was the the whole auditorium was filled with what they called the laughter of the Holy Spirit. And so it was actually kind of a creepy experience where 6,000 people are kind of hysterically laughing, being slain in the spirit and things like that. And uh, it kind of freaked me out, so much so that I um, avoided reading the book of Acts. (laughs) I didn't want to read Acts because I just didn't want to read about Pentecost and Acts chapter 2 because I I so conflated in my mind some what I considered to be extreme um, applications of the Spirit with uh, what I found in Scripture. And that was not a good thing, (laughs) right? Acts is um, inspired, it's part of Scripture, um, and the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, so he's not someone that I should be fearful of. Um, So that was, you know, my experience. So, anyone else have any story of your um, experience with the Holy Spirit, good or bad? So another point of application, yeah, whether it's fear, confusion, lack of knowledge, clarity, what can you do to correct those false ideas that you might have or a wrong posture of heart toward the Holy Spirit? And what helped me um, correct my wrong attitude 
strangely enough, was a book on the Trinity. So I was reading a book, I think it's called God the Trinity by Malcolm Yarnell, and he, he was talking about Paul's letter to the Ephesians as this richly Trinitarian book. And um, yeah, I, I think God really used that book just to highlight that I was neglecting study of the Holy Spirit. So two primary goals of today is, if applicable, help us correct wrong ideas or postures we might have regarding the Holy Spirit. Uh, And then the second goal would be to come to see how the Holy Spirit is both essential to and is God's great gift in the life of the Christian. Uh, He's necessary in our growth and sanctification. Without him, uh, it's not possible. So let me read a a verse, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And so that verse demonstrates how the Spirit is the one who applies the work of Christ. The Spirit is the one who comes to indwell our hearts. So the triune God comes to indwell believers through the Spirit. And then um, we'll discuss more of the creed later, but the Nicene Creed says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified. So this is uh, what we're going to cover today, Lord willing. (laughs) Um, So first we'll look at why am I emphasizing God, the Holy Spirit? Um, To Jared's point, um, I think there's, there can be lack of clarity or confusion, and he seems kind of nebulous, but we need to emphasize uh, this is God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Um, so we'll look at his deity and his personhood. So he's not an impersonal force or power. He is a divine person. Um, and then we'll, there's some basic Trinitarian theology that we need to keep in mind as we look to the work of the Holy Spirit. So we have to look at who the Spirit is before we look at the work of the Spirit. And then um, there's some concepts we'll look at. What specifically does the Spirit do? What work can be specifically assigned or ascribed to him? Um, Note, we're not going to cover salvation. That'll be next week. But all next week, when we cover the doctrine of salvation, we need to think about how the Spirit is the one from beginning to end who is at work in our salvation, from causing us to be born again to sanctifying us, recreating us, restoring us, all the way to glorification. So the Spirit from beginning to end is involved in that process. We're not going to talk about that in this lecture just because we'll discuss most of it next week. And then... After that, um, we'll look at two contemporary issues, uh, baptism of the Spirit, what that is, contemporary debate about it, and then gifts of the Spirit, uh, biblical affirmation of the gifts, 
and then a contemporary debate as to uh, the gifts. So, let's look at the creed first. Um, what has the church historically believed about the Holy Spirit? Um, as I said, the Nicene Creed says, I believe, or we believe, in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, um, who spoke by the prophets. So, why do I cite the creed here? Why am I starting with the creed? Well, I would say nobody approaches theology as a blank slate. Um, contrary to John Locke, who says we are a blank slate, tabula rasa, we're not a blank slate. So uh, when we approach the Bible, we do so with this inheritance of a great Christian tradition standing behind us. So we stand on the shoulders of past theological giants who have thought long and hard about what the Bible teaches, and that should come as a great relief to us because when we approach the Bible, we're not the first people to have to think about this. Uh, so we can learn from the wisdom of the past. So I begin by citing the creed, not because uh, the creed has final authority. It doesn't. Only Scripture does. But I would say the creed is a nice summary statement about what the Bible teaches. So the creed would be true insofar as it affirms and summarizes what Scripture teaches. So in this statement... Uh, it affirms the deity and the personhood of the Holy Spirit. And we'll look at some important concepts for this. Um, the Holy Spirit, we, we would say, is one in essence with the Father and the Son and co-equal in glory and power. So another word for essence is nature. So there's one divine nature, that the Father, Son, and Spirit share. They're, they all share the same divine nature. And each person of the Trinity is co-equal in glory and majesty. So there's not a hierarchy of authority. We'll talk more about that later. There's, there's an order in the Trinity, but it's not one of a hierarchy of authority. So the Father, Son, and Spirit... Um, are co-equal in glory and power. The Holy Spirit's not a little more powerful than the Son or the Father. So the Holy Spirit is called the Lord, just as God the Father, God the Son is called the Lord, and the Spirit is accorded worship and glory with the Father and the Son. So as I said, they're on an equal plane. And the Holy Spirit is a distinct person, so we won't get too much into the weeds, but there's a distinction between nature and person. So nature is the what, uh, what something is, and then the person is the subject or the who. So this is really, you know, the Trinity is so complex because there's only one thing in the universe <laughs> that can have multiple who's. It's not, don't think of that like we think Claire's a, first-person subject, she's a I, I'm an I. Um, that's not what we mean by the Father and the Son, but there, there are multiple who's who share the same nature. Um, so 
uh, nature is the what, the person is the who. And um, we would say also the spirit proceeds from the father and the son. So the creed also there affirms that the Holy Spirit is the giver of life. So the Holy Spirit is active, involved in creation, not only the cosmos, but our personal existence. Uh, He's involved in the recreation of the world that's broken by sin, the perfection or uh, the restoration of the world broken by sin, and, um, and the perfection of it is the full consummation of that in glory. Uh, the Holy Spirit spoke by the prophets. Um, so think of breath. He spoke. And that's, that's a reference to special revelation. God breathed, inspired, inerrant scripture. And so that is very important as we think about the work of the Spirit today, that the Spirit speaks. Um, How primarily does the Spirit speak today? Well, I passionately believe in the supreme importance of Spirit-empowered preaching of God's Word. So as we evaluate the work of the Spirit, uh, we have to ensure that it's grounded and tethered to the Word of God. And maybe you've heard, I think it's a false dichotomy. Uh, People will talk about uh, a word-centered person versus more of a spirit-centered person. So word-centered uh, um, people would be, think more of uh, who would be considered conservative, reformed individuals. They get characterized as word-centered. That is, they're clinical, dry, lifeless. Um, it's a lifeless form of Christianity. They're word-centered. Um, they downplay the role of the spirit versus somebody who's not that, they're spirit-centered. Well, I think that whole word-spirit-centered thing is a false dichotomy uh, because properly understood, it's word and spirit together. And what God has joined together, let no man separate. So um, there is no word-centered person to the extent Uh, expense of a spirit-centered person. Word and spirit go together. The Bible itself is God's revelation. The Word of God is a spirit-saturated, God-breathed book. It's a product of God's breath. And so all that we affirm of God the Son and God the Father, we affirm of the Holy Spirit. So all of God's attributes, God's independence, his fullness, his unchangeability, his uh, wisdom, truth, faithfulness, things like that can also be attributed to the Holy Spirit. So let's look at um, some biblical affirmation and support of the deity of the Holy Spirit. I think one of the clearest affirmations of the Holy Spirit's deity occurs in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So you see there in verse 3, 
He says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then at the end of verse 4, he says, you have not lied to man, but to God. So he's equating lying to the Spirit with lying to God. So there's his deity of the Holy Spirit. That's probably the closest direct affirmation of the Spirit's deity. Uh, But like many things in the Bible, many doctrinal truths, we don't have chapter and verse that explicitly affirms this. So then we have to reason theologically um, from Scripture. And that's all systematic theology is. We take what Scripture says, and then we try to make sense of it. So we know things like um, God is omnipresent. Um, So then we would reason based on passages like Psalm 139, that the Spirit is omnipresent. Where shall I go from your Spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? So anything that's affirming of God, we're, we're deducing that that also is true of the Spirit. God is truth. Uh, Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, calls the Spirit the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father. And so the, the implication is that the Spirit shares the same essence, the same nature as the Father and the Son. So he shares the same attribute of truthfulness, like God the Father and God the Son. And you could do that you know, for all of God's attributes. And so we can also look to the Spirit's work to see uh, that he must be divine. So the Bible teaches that God speaks the universe into existence through the Son, or through the word. That's another word for the son. So Colossians 1, Paul says, speaking of Jesus or the word of God, the son, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, that is by the son, by the word, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So God the Father creates through the word or through the Son. And a proper understanding of the Trinity would recognize that, okay, if the Father and Son are at work in creation, then who else must be at work in creation? Well, the Spirit. He's not left out. So, we come to passages like Genesis 1, 1 through 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And the word there of the Spirit hovering over the face of the waters is an image of like an eagle coming to nest um, on eggs. So it's, it's the Spirit settling over the waters, preparing the earth for God's creative activity. So the Spirit is present at creation, preparing the earth for the creative work of the Father and the Son. And how does the Father create? He creates through his breath, that's the word for Spirit, and God said, let there be. And so it's, it's God the Father creating through the Son by the Spirit. So it's totally Trinitarian work. 
And so we deduce that the spirit then must be divine. And so if the spirit is the same nature as the father and the son, then he is the distinct person of the Trinity. And here's how to think about what a person is. I I was saying the person is the who or the subject, the I. If I was to say I'm going to do this, that's what I mean by the I, first person. So persons act, uh, and they act through a nature. So we have a human nature that's comprised of body and soul, And so I, Aaron, act through my nature, through my human nature. So God is three persons, Father, Son, Spirit, who acts through his divine nature. So the Spirit is a person. He's not impersonal. He's not ethereal uh, force or power. Uh, His power is not inferior. He's not a lesser being, but he's co-equal in glory and power. And so often, rightly, we speak of the power of the Holy Spirit, but that emphasis on power, for whatever reason, can make us think that the Holy Spirit is impersonal. It's just force or influence. But he is a person who acts. And you could think of it like this, too. Uh, He is an actor not merely action. So he's not just passive action, but he is an actor, uh, not a dramatist. But he's somebody who has motivations, purposing, intellect, will, choosing. That's what I mean by an actor. He's an agent. So what are biblical affirmations of the Spirit's personhood? Well, as I said, the Spirit has intelligence. He has knowledge, wisdom. He knows the deep things of God. 1 Corinthians 2 says, For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So the Spirit is an intelligent person with knowledge. The Spirit has a will. Um, I'll just say this. In your notes, I have a, a paragraph on this notion of um, the divine will. So basically, God has one will that is shared between the Father, Son, and Spirit. So they don't have three independent wills as if the Spirit could ever be in conflict with the Son. Because will is a property of the nature. So a person acts through a nature. There's one divine will uh, so the three, uh, there's something called social Trinitarianism, which can be bad <laughs> because uh, the implication is that it describes the Trinity as a community of persons with three independent wills. And that's not uh, what the church has historically affirmed. We've said that there is one divine will between the Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, Jesus throws a wrench into this because Jesus becomes incarnate, and then he has two wills because he has a human nature and a divine nature. But the divine will 
is shared by the Father, Son, and Spirit. There's one divine will, but Jesus also has a human will because he has a human body and soul. But the Spirit doesn't act on his own apart from the Father and the Son. So there's one divine will. Um, so 1 Corinthians 12, 11, the Spirit gives gifts to the church according to his will, according to his sovereign purposes and plans. And the Spirit directs certain people uh, in missionary activity. So Acts chapter 13, uh, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Or Acts chapter 20, verse 28, he says, pay a Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church which he has obtained with his own blood. So the Spirit is choosing, calling, setting apart, purposing. That's what will is. Uh, the Spirit is teacher. He teaches. John 14, 26, Jesus talks about how the helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send, in my name, he will teach you and bring to your remembrance all that I've said. Remarkably, the Spirit prays for us, uh, interceding for us on our behalf. So Romans 8 says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And then, this is figurative language, but Ephesians 4.30 says we can grieve the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit has affections. So he is not an impersonal force or power, but he is an all-powerful divine person. He's God the Holy Spirit. Um, and briefly, I just want to touch on some Trinitarian um, concepts because as I said, it's important to know who the Holy Spirit is before we look at the work of the Spirit. So here's a, probably a funny diagram. <laughs> um, but this is a, this is a good diagram um, that shows some good Trinitarian concepts. So there's one God and three persons. There's one divine essence, one divine nature. And the persons are co-equal in glory and majesty. As I said, no one person is inferior to the other. There's one God and three persons. Those are real distinctions. We're not just uh, giving a distinction in name only. They're real distinctions, but there's not uh, multiplicity. There's one God. They share the same nature. So if there are real distinctions, then how do we um, distinguish the persons of the Trinity? And we distinguish based on their relations. So there's something that's called the eternal relations of origin. And uh, don't let the word origin throw you off as if there was a beginning. Um, that's why we throw the word eternal before it. it. It was an eternal origin. So it's a way of speaking about who God has been eternally. 
and he is eternally uh, related as Father, Son, Spirit. And so we don't distinguish the persons by rank or authority because they all share the same authority and rank. So we distinguish by their relations, how they relate to one another. And the father is characterized by his fatherliness. You see the word paternity in the dotted line between the father and the son. So the father is eternally the father of the son. And the father is unbegotten. Um, The son, we would say, is eternally generated. So he was not created by the father, but he eternally existed as the son. And he's characterized by sometimes what's called filiation or sonship. He's eternally the son of the father. And then the spirit is eternally Uh, the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. Or sometimes they'll use that word, spiration. So the eternal relations are who God is at the deepest level. Father, Son, Spirit, who God is in himself. So then there's something that we call the missions. So... The missions refer to who God is outside of himself in his work, in his economic activity, his external works. So the missions refer to uh, something that occurs in time. So the missions um, are the eternal relations or the processions turned outward in time. And there are two missions. There's the mission of the Son, which is the incarnation. Jesus came to redeem and to save us. And then there's the mission of the Spirit, which is the Spirit's outpouring at Pentecost and the ongoing work of the Spirit in the world. So it's not as if the missions are the beginning point of the Son and the Spirit, but they eternally relate and exist as Father, Son, Spirit. And then in time, we see uh, the inner life of God manifest in a particular way that occurs in time. So that's what the missions refers to. And then the last Trinitarian concept would be inseparable operations. And so the idea there is that when the Father works, um, he works indivisibly with one will and one power. So um, the persons of the Trinity don't act independently from one another. That's the basic idea. So any time the Father or the Son or the Spirit is at work, Uh, the whole Trinity is at work. Uh, The death of Jesus is a work of the Father, Son, and Spirit. The incarnation is a work of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And so this is um, important to think about as we discuss the Spirit's work so when, when the triune God works, 
his action is inseparable, uh, but we have to speak with clarity and specificity. And so then we distinguish that work and we ascribe that work to particular persons of the Trinity. So we, as we assign particular people of the Trinity certain roles, and so that's known as appropriation or termination. So, for example, um, the action of the triune God is um, appropriated or terminates on a specific person. So the example of this would be the incarnation. So only the Son becomes incarnate. So we would say that the incarnation terminates on the Son. The incarnation is ascribed or assigned to the Son. The Father doesn't become incarnate. The Spirit doesn't become incarnate. Only the Son becomes incarnate. Yet, the incarnation is a work of the triune God. So the Father sent the Son to redeem us and to save us, and the Son, Luke tells us, was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so we would ascribe specifically the incarnation to the work of the Son, but the Father and the Spirit were also at work. So that's what we mean when we talk about inseparable operations. When the triune God works, uh, we can specifically assign that to a particular person, but we can't forget about uh, the relationship of the other two members of the Trinity. So, now we look at the work of the Spirit. And we do this with the understanding of inseparable operations. But these are specifically works that are assigned or ascribed to the Holy Spirit. And Allison groups them into three categories. And he calls it speaking, uh, creating, recreating, and perfecting, and then filling with the presence of the triune God. So... Uh, let's look at the work of speaking. So there's a connection between the, the work of the Spirit and prophecy in the Old Testament. You can look at the book of Numbers um, or how the Spirit rests on people. They prophesy. Joel chapter 2 is the famous um, prophecy that prophesies of a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit um, on all flesh. And that was fulfilled at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The, the crowd was gathered together in one place. The Holy Spirit was like this, uh, like a mighty rushing wind, fills the entire house. And then there's the gift of tongues. They start speaking. So the tongues of fire rested on them. They began to speak as they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And what were they speaking about? Well, they were speaking, Acts 2.11 says they were speaking about the mighty acts of God, the mighty works of God. They were speaking with extraordinary power. And um, there's a Puritan theologian, John Owen, who makes a connection between Acts 2 and Isaiah chapter 6 with the tongues of fire and the fiery coal from the altar being placed 
on our lips, representing the Spirit's work of grace, making us holy, sanctifying us. And as I mentioned, that's why I believe in the importance of Spirit-empowered preaching, uh, because there's a connection between speaking, proclaiming, and the work of the Spirit. And that's what's unique about Christian worship. And that's why in-person worship is so important. Uh, Because I think the Spirit is at work in a special way through the congregation's worship, through the prayers, songs, hymns, through the proclamation of God's word. And that corporate worship experience, if you want to use that word, it's a package deal. It's a whole piece. You can't just piece it out. Um, The whole service is worship. Um, and so when, when the word of God is proclaimed, when the pastor proclaims the word, he, he does so filled with the spirit. He's not delivering a lecture like this afternoon. <laughs> um, now, I would say I do believe you can teach filled with the spirit, but that would be different than um, publicly preaching. It's, it's, a lecture is different than a sermon. Um, he's filled with the Spirit to feed God's flock to rightly divide the word of truth. Jesus says in John 6, he says it's, it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. So Jesus' words are life. And how do his words bring life? Well, the Holy Spirit as the Spirit is the one who gives life, so Jesus speaks his words through the Spirit, who thus gives us life. Um, upon our faith, or upon faith, the apostles received the Spirit, and then they in turn proclaimed the gospel, not only in words, but in demonstration of the Spirit's power. So again, there's that word and spirit always go together. They're never separate. 1 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 6 says, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 4, Paul says, Uh, My speech, my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So taking all of that into account, we we see the connection between the work of the spirit and speaking. Um, And so we would say one of God's works specifically appropriated or ascribed to the spirit is the work of speaking. Then we look at creating, recreating, and perfecting. So this this refers to the all-encompassing work of the spirit, beginning with creation, moving to the fall, redemption, recreation, restoration, and then consummation and glorification. So as I mentioned earlier, the spirit was present at creation, preparing the void for God's creative work. The Spirit gives life to God's creatures. Genesis 1, verse 30, uh, we find that God gives life and breath to all creatures. 
Genesis 2-7, we have the creation account of Adam, where God breathes life into the dust from the living ground, or from the ground, and he became a living creature. So I don't think that means Adam at that moment became filled with the Holy Spirit, as we would understand that. Um, but we would be right to recognize the close association between the work of the Spirit and the impartation of life. And then I think there's a connection between Genesis 2, 7, where God breathes into Adam and he becomes a living creature, and then uh, in John 20, um, it, it talks about how Jesus breathed on the disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So there's this new creation work that's alluding to that same idea in Genesis 2-7 of uh, God breathing life into Adam. And now in the new covenant, when we are reborn, we receive the new birth. He breathes on them. They have new life in the Spirit. Um, those passages in Genesis also underscore the personal nature of God's design in creating humanity. So human life is not some blind um, naturalistic evolutionary development that happens independently of God. God was at work in creation, giving, granting life to his image bearers who would then fill the earth and subdue it, bringing all of creation under the authority of God's rule and his reign. But of course, that's, that's God's design, and then sin's entrance into the world disrupts everything. Adam was our covenant representative. He represented all humanity. He sinned, so all of us um, subsequent generations are guilty of sin because in Adam, we sinned as he acted as our representative. So then God executes this plan of redemption to remedy this. And next week we'll look at the whole doctrine of salvation. Um, but again, just to underscore, the spirit is at work in all of that, from rebirth to sanctification to glorification. The spirit is at work. And the spirit's work is the rest, sanctification, making us holy. That's the work of restoration of the image of God. Christ is the perfect image of God. We are slowly being conformed more and more unto his image. And that's the work of the Spirit in our lives. So the Spirit is recreating, perfecting us all the way to consummation, the new heavens and the new earth. Um, if you want a really um, robust presentation of the work of the Spirit, I recommend uh, John Calvin, his Institutes, um, book three. He talks about the work of the Spirit. Uh, John Calvin, uh, contrary to how he's characterized <laughs> by some, uh, he's, a, he's a theologian of the Spirit. Uh, very much emphasizes uh, the role of the Spirit in his theology. Uh, the third work we'll look at is the filling with the presence of the triune God, the Spirit 
Um, as I said, that passage in Ephesians 3, 14 through 17, how we would be strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner being. So the spirit is the one through whom uh, the triune God dwells with his people. So how does the triune God come to dwell with his people? Well, uh, there's a divine aspect to this and there's a human aspect. So the spirit is the divine person who brings Christ to indwell us. On the human side, this happens through the response of faith. But on the divine side, this is a a work of the spirit. Um, John 14, uh, 16 through 17, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit and he says, I will send him and he will be in you. Galatians 3, 2 through 5 emphasizes that we receive the Holy Spirit not on the basis of works, but by hearing with faith. And Paul stresses that point twice. We, we receive the work of the Spirit by hearing with faith. And then 1 John three twenty four says, by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. And so the, the indwelling of the Spirit is something new in the new covenant age. So when we look at uh, the work of the Spirit in the Old Testament, the Spirit is associated primarily with speaking, with prophetic revelation, or uh, the Spirit temporarily rushes on somebody, usually a judge, somebody in a position of authority uh, for military victory, and so forth. Uh, The spirit rests upon kings or individuals like Saul, uh, signifying that God has set apart this person to act and accomplish his purposes through that person. So that's how the spirit works in the Old Testament. It rushes upon people to empower them for specific ends. Of course, with Saul, the spirit withdraws his presence from Saul, but it remains on David. Um, forever, meaning signaling to Jesus as the fulfillment of the promise given to David that his spirit would remain on him forever. And then when Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, he opens up Isaiah and says, the spirit of the Lord is on me to proclaim good news to the poor. So the spirit um, eternally remains on Jesus as the fulfillment of Uh, the Davidic promise. So the Old Testament narrative, though, even though it's different, it's always pointing to God's permanent presence through the Spirit. So in Genesis, Adam and Eve dwelled in the garden. As a consequence of their sin, they're driven from the garden. But God promised that he would dwell with his people. And so he promises this to Moses and the Israelites, and he dwells with them in the presence of the tabernacle. Um, And that, again, is a type of the incarnation, pointing to the reality of Jesus' tabernacling among us, the, the dwelling, being God with us. So it's always moving forward to that permanent presence of God dwelling with his people. Um, 
I mentioned the Isaiah passages about the spirit um, who will remain forever. Um, Jesus teaches us in John 14 that he would send the Holy Spirit to dwell with us, to be in us. And then on the day of Pentecost, uh, the Spirit is poured out on all flesh and comes to indwell individual believers. And then Paul teaches that the church, the people of God, are the proper dwelling place of God. They are the temple of the Spirit, the temple of the living God. Uh, 2 Corinthians 6 1 Corinthians 3, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So again, uh, Old Testament, spirit's presence uh, is often temporary, specific for a specific purpose. In the new covenant age, the spirit comes to indwell us, and this is something new. So let's look at uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, what it is, biblical support for it, what we believe about it. So when we, by faith, believe in the promise of the gospel, the good news about what Jesus has done, we receive the Holy Spirit through faith. And that is known as the baptism of the Spirit. So 1 Corinthians 12 talks about the, there's one body with many members. All the members of the body, though many, are one. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. So at conversion, which is the human response to the gospel, we would say we are baptized in the Spirit. We are incorporated into the body of Christ. We are baptized into one body. And that happens at conversion. So um, I believe there's one baptism in the Spirit, which happens at the moment of conversion. That's the initial event in which Christ comes to indwell the believer through the Spirit. And then, throughout the Christian's life, there are multiple fillings of the Spirit uh, and being empowered. Um, so after the initial baptism of the Spirit, you need the Spirit's ongoing empowerment and influence in your life. So we're right to ask God to fill us with the Spirit. Uh, being filled with the Spirit is simply a prayer asking the Spirit to empower you for godliness, uh, for courage, for endurance. Um, but I think, on the whole, the witness of the New Testament would teach there's one baptism of the Spirit followed by multiple fillings of the Spirit, a life filled with the Spirit. A contemporary debate about Baptism of the Spirit is largely due uh, to, um, in the 20th century, the rise of Pentecostal theology. Uh, Pentecostal theology, charismatic theology, those are two different movements. We can maybe talk about the differences um, later. Um, but Pentecostal theology will emphasize and teach that the baptism of the Spirit 
is something that occurs after conversion. So you're converted and you believe, and then sometime later in your life, you need to be baptized with the Spirit. Um, and in some forms, the, the idea is that, uh, or the teaching is that the gift of tongues is evidence of the baptism of the Spirit. Um, passages they use to support this would be Acts 2 at Pentecost where the Spirit comes, then they speak in tongues. Acts chapter 10 uh, with Cornelius. Um, Cornelius speaks in tongues. Acts chapter 8, the Samaritans. Eight, Acts chapter 19. So those passages describe um, being filled with the Spirit and then speaking in tongues. And so they will say that um, the gift of tongues is evidence of baptism of the Spirit. Um, I take the interpretation that says, well, those passages don't ne necessarily uh, necessitate the gift of tongues with the baptism of the Spirit. Um, I think it can be associated with the gift of the, or, or baptism of the Spirit, but it doesn't require it. Uh, I think it's important to ask, as you look at those narratives, what was the purpose of the gift of tongues in those narratives? And usually the gift is accompanied by a specific purpose. Um, 1 Corinthians 12 affirms all Christians are baptized in the Spirit. That passage also teaches that all, not all Christians speak in tongues, 1 Corinthians 12.30. So we are all baptized with the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12.30 says, uh, do all prophesy, do all speak in tongues? And Paul is speaking rhetorically, but the implied answer is no. So we all can be baptized with the Spirit, uh, but 1 Corinthians 12.30 explicitly indicates uh, that not all Christians who are baptized in the Spirit have this gift. But, you know, as we think about that, the important thing to underscore and not to uh, set aside is that we need the continuing presence and activity of the Spirit in our lives. Uh, Paul continually commands us to be filled with the Spirit. So Ephesians 5.18, and again, think of the, this command. <laughs> Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but... Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in that passage, it's especially important to recognize the Trinitarian nature of the filling of the Spirit. So we're commanded to be filled with the Spirit, and then that filling leads us to give thanks to the Father through the Son. Uh, Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Filled with the Spirit, give thanks to the Son, through the, or give thanks to the Father through the Son. Um, Paul teaches us to, to set our mind on the Spirit. Romans 8 uh, five through six, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, 
but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Ephesians 6, uh, 18 teaches us to pray at all times in the Spirit. And so we need to live this Spirit-empowered life. Um, But don't beat yourself up over this. Uh, Don't grow discouraged uh, by me saying we need to set our minds on the Spirit. We need to be filled with the Spirit. We need, we need, we need. Um, Those are just biblical examples, a sampling of how the New Testament speaks of the necessity of a Spirit-filled life. Uh, So don't uh, look at, you know, those passages and beat yourself up if that highlights your own inadequacy. Uh, A big practical question for us is, well, what does it look like uh, practically or in concrete terms to be filled with or to walk with the Spirit? What does that look like? And I think we we need to be driven by a sense of our own dependence on the Spirit. It should should, uh, cause us, that awareness of our dependence on the Spirit should cause us to cry out and ask for the Spirit to fill us. And asking for God's help and the Spirit's empowerment is not... um, you know, a a golden ticket or a silver bullet, whatever. It's not um, guaranteeing that nothing bad is going to happen or anything like that, right? It's a prayer of dependence on the presence and power of God. Spirit, fill me. Give me courage as I'm about to have this conversation. I think also when we think about, okay, what does it look like for me to be filled with the Spirit? Our mind Uh, first, typically goes to, I need to do more, 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 more Bible reading, more scripture memorization, Uh, I need to practice more spiritual disciplines, more focused time of prayer and all that, more, more, more. Uh, But I'm not convinced that more is the answer. I think what we need is a simple awareness and an acknowledgement of his presence. And we need to get better attuned at recognizing his presence. Not necessarily do more, but God, grow my awareness uh, for how you're at work. Um, So how do you do that? I'm a fan of what some people call breath prayers. Prayers short enough you can say in one breath. Fill me. Guide me. Give me courage. Uh, or they could be affirmations of God's truth. Uh, I lack nothing. I have all that I need. I'm fulfilled. Just, you know, a one sentence short prayer, those are ways that we actualize and become aware of the Spirit's presence. So it, you know, and that's something you do. Uh, when you're driving, when you're running. Um, Life is hectic and chaotic. We don't have uh, time often to have 
a 30-minute time in the Word in the morning. That's okay. You can still live walking in the Spirit. Those breath prayers are helpful. So the Holy Spirit is God's great gift to the Christian because through Him, we're empowered to grow and walk in holiness. Uh, The last thing we'll cover today is just gifts of the Holy Spirit. And gifts can be a contentious topic among some Christians, uh, but this is a topic that brothers and sisters in Christ can disagree on in love. So let me begin with um, affirmation, biblical support for spiritual gifts, and then we'll briefly touch on contemporary matters of debate about the gifts. So first, a definition. Uh, Spiritual gifts are gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to Christians for the purpose of building up the church and to God's glory. So they are gifts that the Spirit gives or endows Christians with for the purpose of building up the church and unto the glory of God. And spiritual gifts are needed for growth, development, maturity, and the mission of the church. Uh, Gifts are given so that believers grow up into maturity in Christ. It's Ephesians 4.13. And there are four major biblical passages that outline um, spiritual gifts. None of them are necessarily exhaustive lists, we would look at that and say that's a representative list of the various ways in which the Holy Spirit endows believers with certain capacities or abilities or giftings. Uh, Romans 12, 4 through 8 says, For as in one body we have many members, the members don't all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body, all individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion of, to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, to the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is a large discussion of gifts, how they operate in, in the gathered worship of the church. Ephesians 4, 7, 7 through 16, and then 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11. Um, so as you l- look at those passages, um, this is kind of an arrangement of gifts that we see Um, God gives gifts, which are manifestations of his varied, rich, abundant grace to empower, equip, and build the church up to maturity. And we are called to be good stewards of God's varied grace. Gifts of prophecy, serving, teaching, exhortation, uh, contributing, giving, leading, uh, faith, gifts of healing, miracles, discernment of spirits, tongues, the interpretation of tongues, uh, administrating, evangelizing, pastoring or shepherding, 
Um, other gifts, you know, the, the, there's a whole conversation we can get into of the difference between office and gift. So there's a biblical office of apostle, there's a biblical office of pastor or elder, but then there's also a gift of pastoring. Um, some might speak of a, a gift of apostleship. Often it's associated with missionary activity today in unreached, um, unengaged people groups. Um, hospitality. As you look at uh, the tabernacle in the Old Testament, um, there's passages about the Holy Spirit filling people uh, in their work of craftsmanship in the tabernacle. Um, you know, those are, those are up for debate. But that's just a, an arrangement of those New Testament samplings. Um, but important things to keep in mind about the gifts, I think we can get easily um, off track with them. But I would say that gifts, remember, are not primarily about you. They are gifts given by the Spirit for the church. Gifts are not primarily about you. Uh, they're not, uh, we shouldn't treat them like a personality test, right? <laughs> I think uh, many of us, myself included, have probably taken a spiritual gift survey. Uh, I think that's a problematic way to go about it. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, 11 says, all these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions each one individually as he wills. So the spirit is the principal actor at work and the gifts then are given and empowered by the spirit according to his sovereign plans and purposes. So if that's true, then that means I don't discover my spiritual gift in isolation because they are not gifts for the individual, they are gifts for the church. And then those gifts are confirmed uh, by others as they see you living and loving and serving in the church. Um, as I said, my word of caution, um, I'll give a, a commendation, an encouragement, and a caution with the whole spiritual gift surveys or spiritual gift inventories. Um, as I said, the intention is good, but I think they can easily become misguided. Um, first, the general assumption, I think, that's communicated, whether or not it's intended, but the general assumption that's communicated is that your spiritual gift is some secret discovery that needs to be unlocked. And it treats it as if uh, your spiritual gift is a static category. So that means unchanging, right? Your spiritual gift is static. Um, but I think there's biblical support to think of the gifts as more of a dynamic um, concept. So for example, 1 Timothy 4.25, Paul instructs Timothy to practice his spiritual gift of teaching. He says, practice these things Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. So he's encouraging Timothy to practice at preaching, get better in your craft so that the church may see um, your process, your progress. Um, so that 
implies that that gift of teaching is not some static thing, uh, but that Timothy had a role to play to grow and develop that gift. And I would say, if the gifts are given to individual believers for the church, then I think that means that the Spirit could give gifts um, in different circumstances for different purposes. Maybe it's a period of time that the Spirit empowers you with this gift unto a specific end. There's no reason to believe that um, that's a static thing that you have for the duration of your life. I think, in general, most of us have um, certain gifts that that's just how God has wired us um, that we grow and develop throughout our life. But I don't think it's just a static thing. I think it's dynamic, possibility for growth and maturity. Um, also, why, is it, why would I caution against thinking about the gifts as something static? I think we could be tempted to exempt ourselves from serving in particular areas if we say, and maybe you don't say this explicitly, but you're like, well, that's not my gift. <laughs> uh, so, of course, not everybody can or should be involved in every ministry of the church. They shouldn't. We need to know our strengths. Uh, but don't wrongfully exempt yourself from serving in some capacity based on the religious-sounding excuse of, well, that's not my spiritual gift. Um, but anyway, I think the bottom line for spiritual gifts is that they're to be exercised in an atmosphere of love. 1 Corinthians 13. Um, so the final thing we'll touch on is just contemporary matters of debate. Two positions, they call it cessationism and continuationism. So the question is, does the Holy Spirit continue to distribute to the church all the gifts mentioned in the New Testament and the passages I outlined? And this debate will set up a distinction among the gifts between what they call sign gifts or supernatural or miraculous gifts from the other gifts. And really what they're talking about is the gift of tongues, healing, prophecy, miracles, things like that. Those are sign gifts. Um, I think the whole distinction is kind of silly because all the gifts are supernatural, right? They're from the Spirit. Uh, so it's kind of a false thing. But anyway, categories are necessary. Um, they are spiritual gifts given by the Spirit. The position of cessationism is the view that while many of the gifts are operative today, the so-called sign gifts or miraculous gifts, so prophecy, speaking in tongues, the interpretation of tongues, healing, etc., has stopped or ceased, hence the name cessationism. Um, Cessationists don't believe that all the gifts have stopped, so don't think of it like that. It's these sign gifts they will believe that those, um, the cessation is due to the purpose of those gifts for the spread of the gospel at a particular time in salvation history, and those gifts were needed to confirm the gospel as the foundation was being built 
but after that apostolic foundation had been laid, they're no longer needed in the life of the church today. That's the argument for cessationists. So it was a, those sign gifts were basically associated with the work of the apostles. And since there are no more apostles today, no more sign gifts. Continuationism, on the other hand, is the view that all the gifts listed in the New Testament, including the so-called sign gifts, prophecy, speaking in tongues, healing, miracles, continue to be operative today. And continuationists hold that the church needs all the spiritual gifts to grow and to be equipped for the mission of the church. Uh, If you've noticed, and some of you may not like this about it, and that's okay, uh, Allison is writing for a broad evangelical audience. So often he he will just present the view, and he doesn't um, tell you necessarily what he believes. Um, So in that chapter, he, he presents the views, the arguments for cessationism, and the views and arguments for continuationism. Um... This is a matter that Christians can disagree on. Uh, As I mentioned, the bottom line per 1 Corinthians 13 is that the gifts are to be exercised in love, and that means that includes our discussion of the gifts needs needs to be in an atmosphere of love. Personally, I hold to continuationism. Why do I hold to that view? Um, I think there are various passages in the New Testament uh, where... Non-apostles are seen um, using the so-called sign gifts, so it's not just associated with the apostles. Um, I I think um, Paul's letters, different apostolic instructions suggest the gifts are still operative today. Paul tells us that we should desire spiritual gifts, especially that we may prophesy 1 Corinthians 14. Um, later, Paul, or in chapter 14, Paul tells us not to forbid speaking in tongues. Um, 1 Thessalonians 5 says not to stifle the spirit or not to oppose prophecies, but to test all things. And I think that means test all things by Scripture. Um. I'm a continuationist today, um, but 1 Corinthians 13, um, I believe eventually even the so-called sign gifts will cease uh, at the return of Christ. They are temporary gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to empower the church until the return of Christ. Um, 1 Corinthians 1.7 says, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end. And then 1 Corinthians 13 says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. They will cease. Uh, As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For now we know in part and prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away And so that's associating the the cessation of those gifts with the return of Christ, the fullness of uh, the Spirit in glory in the new heavens and the new earth. So challenges to my view would be 
um, the concern would be, well, if you say that prophecy is operative today, that challenges the authority and sufficiency of scripture. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. I, I don't think that um, the gift of prophecy in the New Testament necessarily carries the same um, thus saith the Lord uh, prophetic revelation that the Old Testament prophets spoke. So I believe you can believe in a closed canon that, that is scripture is fully sufficient, revealed. There are no more books being added to scripture today. It's closed. Um, but the gift of prophecy um, would be operative. So 1 Corinthians, I think it's 14. Um, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. So there, 1 Corinthians 14, 3. Prophecies um, is for our encouragement, building each other up, our consolation, comfort, comforting one another. Um, so prophecy today would not be a replacement of Scripture, but we test prophecies by Scripture. Um, so what is prophecy? It's revelation, God revealing something to someone who they receive from, they receive it from God and then they communicate it to the church. And then the church tests it and evaluates it. An example of this, uh, John Piper tells a story where he was preaching about small groups and um, he's in Minneapolis, Minnesota and he's just giving, rattling off examples, and he says, uh, you know, perhaps you work on the 34th floor of the IDS tower, and blah, blah, blah. Um, and this woman, who he had never met after the sermon, came up and said, why did you mention the IDS tower? Um, and she said, I work on the 34th floor of the IDS tower, and I've been praying, asking God if I should start a small group. And... Um, and then Piper was like, well, I think that's God's gift to you. <laughs> uh, so that, that would be an example of prophecy. So it's not, it's not revelation as in scripture revelation, but it's just God bringing something to mind. You communicate it for the encouragement and consolation of someone. Um, there are challenges to that view, but that's just my view. Um, anyway, so... It's a live, live debate. So let's stop there and um, stop for some questions, if you have any.